Dr. Matt McCormick is an associate professor of philosophy at Sacramento State University. He has published several papers defending atheism in professional journals, and he writes a substantive atheism blog called Atheism Proving the Negative. Matt, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. And the only other cool thing I've been doing lately is I developed a, uh, a course, an undergraduate course on atheism, which I think is about the only one of its type in the country. And I've been teaching that at Sac State for a couple of years. And that's been, uh, been very interesting and gotten a lot of attention. That's cool. There are so many entire universities who are devoted to training a people in Christian apologetics, but there yeah. really aren't any others besides your own classes that would teach, you know, philosophical atheism per se. Yeah, that's an interesting parallel. I, I approach it more or less like I, I have, like all philosophers do in all their classes, so it's not quite apologetics. Yeah. But once you go through the course, you get pretty thoroughly familiar with all of the major families of arguments and the ins and outs and the various debates that people have had over the last century. So you, it would make you a very good apologist if that was your intention. <laughs> but uh, I, I may have just entrenched a few believers even more deeply with the course. <laughs> <laughs> Made them be able to be even more resistant to more arguments, maybe. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, I, I see that as progress just as much as anything. I, you know, I, I figure, and this is where I part company with some of the, you know, the more the social atheists that I end up talking to. Um, for me, it's reason and philosophy first, and atheism second. Yeah. So, so I'm more interested in, you know, or I'm trying to keep the my priorities straight here, right? It's not about arguing no God at all costs, and you know, through any sort of gymnastics or any sort of rational contortions you can go through, because actually that's what I see Christian apologetics as, right? I mean, that's what it amounts to is that. Their approach is, given that, you know, there is a God, and it's the Christian God, and, and given that, taken as an axiom that, you know, Jesus is his only son, and we are going to defend that, then yeah. what sort of philosophical argument can you construct in, in defense of it? Yeah. And, of course, that, you know, that's just so ass-backward as far as clear-headed, you know, rational thinking goes. I mean, the remarkable thing is that you get some of those folks who, who will construct these you know, really sophisticated arguments towards that end. But ultimately, and many of them will admit this, right, that they're going to subordinate anything that reason tells them to the Jesus conclusion at all costs. So if they were to arrive or, or if the evidence were to suggest some contrary conclusion, they'd just reject the evidence, reject the reason, right? You've got yeah. to defend God no matter what. Yeah, and that's explicitly stated by several philosophers um, for yeah. example, William Lane Craig and Reasonable Faith. Now, your class on atheism, does it present a lot more of the atheistic arguments than you would normally get in a philosophy of religion class? Because I find that most classes yeah. and texts on philosophy of religion talk a lot about the theistic arguments, and then they'll mention the problem of evil, and that's pr pretty much it for atheism. Yeah, that's right. I, the, the way the tradition has developed here you know, the last thousand years in philosophy and academia is obviously that the church and and religious people have have by and large preserved or at least heavily influenced what philosophy did so philosophy has grown very closely along with in the west with christianity so by and large you know the people who've been interested in the last century in philosophy of religion have also been 
believers. And that then percolates down into the anthologies and the textbooks and, and then all the, the, way the, the way the course gets typically taught. So if you pick up a run-of-the-mill anthology, that's exactly right. The description you gave is pretty dead on for you know, the, the kind of distribution of, of emphasis. So I used one of those for years and years, but um, as I got more comfortable with the literature and got to know more, and once I, certainly once I taught the atheism course, I, I started revamping my Phil Religion course so it's got a bit more of a balanced approach. I do more of the critical and skeptical stuff too now. And I pick some of that stuff by hand. But I also find that at that level with a lot of college students, you know, they're predominantly religious of one sort or another. You know, the sort of exchanges that we get used to having about this once you've been in the working on this material for a long time, you know, your average 19-year-old college sophomore, that's pretty intense, pretty hardcore for them. And I'm not trying to make converts. And this is the, sort of the point I was making about the atheism course, too, is my goal is to have everybody comes into one of my courses. I want them to leave having done a sort of careful belief inventory and thought long and hard about their reasons for whatever it is they believe. And I want them to have a more sophisticated and more thoughtful and a more, you know, more depth in their justification for their views. And yeah. I consider that to be progress, right? Um, yeah. And some people that, for a lot of people, if they're Christians to start with or believers to start with, that amounts to them giving it up. But some people, you know, they don't. They they just become more thoughtful, reflective believers. And, you know, that's progress. That's a good thing. Yeah. Moving into the philosophy of religion in general, do yeah. you really think that the philosophical community can be persuaded one way or the other about theism or atheism by arguments that are being thrown back and forth in philosophy of religion? Well, we're in a we're in a funny place now because after, you know, the 20th century, after Quine and after all these developments in epistemology, people are, you know, a bit more cagey about what it is to be certain or what it is to be convinced by philosophical argument. You know, all these things get pushed yeah. back to big metaphysical and meta epistemological concerns. You know, people don't change their mind abruptly or suddenly. You know, once in a while people will, but, you know, philosophers are, are strange. Sometimes they will, but I think for the most part the battle's already won over theism, atheism in philosophy. I think for the most part philosophers are atheists. Yeah. They've thought long and hard about it, and they've reflected on all the classic arguments, you know, and and they don't find them convincing. You know, and the, the telling indicator here is that even the major believers in the field Flanagan, and some of the others, they'll concede the point that there are not, there's no such thing as a, as an argument, a sound argument that makes the existence of God convincing or compelling. I think, by and large, the philosophers who believe have given up on this classic natural theology project of trying to prove that there is a God, and they've shifted gears over to this Reformed epistemology business where you say, oh, well, believing in God is a basic, it's an axiom, it's a sort of foundational proposition, and it's not one that admits of proof by argument. It's something that, that gives you grounds for believing everything else. Mm-hmm. And as such, then it's unassailable. It can't be criticized as being irrational because it's the foundation of rationality and blah, blah, blah. I mean, you know the, you know the, the spin. You know, that amounts to a major concession. And I'm seeing a lot more people philosophers who believe and non-philosophers. I mean, non-philosopher Christians are all picking that all up, mm-hmm. right? This all comes out of Planaga in the 90s, and it's percolated its way down into Christian apologetics and the mainstream of Christianity. You know, you're getting 
educated and, and thoughtful Christians now who are repeating some of those arguments from Flanagan from 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, so it's becoming quite influential, that. I think it is, and I think even evangelicals have noticed the rise of Calvinism in the United States, and I think some of that is coming yeah. from Plantinga, and yeah. uh, his influence in the scholarly community is percolating down. Yeah. And it's, it's really an ingenious position, right, because it effectively cuts off belief from all skeptical or critical scrutiny. Maddening and interesting at the same time. <laughs> you know, it's like you just you put out you put out six fires here and you get those all stamped out and then there's half a dozen more that have sprung up, right? Because the urge to believe is so unbelievably, you know, powerful and indomitable that, that people will construct some sort of story no matter what to kind of render this thing acceptable in their minds. Well, you mentioned a moment ago that in some ways the battle is over because the vast majority of philosophers are atheists, as was confirmed by the largest ever poll of professional scholars conducted by uh, Chalmers and somebody else yeah. recently. Uh, but in the philosophy of religion field, the majority of philosophers of religion are theists. Uh, right. What do you think about that? The people who are really interested in this tend to be the believers. Yeah, and to be a non-believer, to be an atheist, and to forge into this territory is is kind of touchy and risky. Because as you know, and lots of the people who listen to your and read your work know, there's a heavy social price to pay for coming out of the closet as an a atheist. It makes people uncomfortable, and there's there's a great deal of discomfort out there with any kind of criticism of religion. You know, there's this kind of conflation about religious belief and ethnic identity. So. To criticize somebody's religious belief, people take that very personally, and they take that as a kind of hostile, personal attack. Yeah. It's just bad taste to be an atheist. It's certainly bad taste to talk about it openly. Whether they're conscious of it or not, I think a lot of academics have thought it through, and if you press them on the issue, they say, no, I don't believe in that, but they don't want to say it very loud. You know, you've seen this, right? Uh, you, you go watch some of those videos like the TED Talks or the Beyond Belief Talks where you get these really outspoken atheists like Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and, and the like and Daniel Dennett. And then you watch a room full of academics go after them. And, and they rarely have any direct specific criticism of the position it's always this business about your tone and your attitude and your and your being too confrontational and are you know isn't there a better way for you to go about this? It's always about the the means, not the end, right? Um, and I take that as a symptom. Even some people who should know better, right? I mean, I'm really embarrassed to see Paul Churchland and and people uh, criticize Dawkins for his tone. Why is your attitude? I mean, okay, that hurts your feelings or that bothers you, right? But how is that? How did that become a legitimate criticism? of somebody giving reasons and arguing for the truth of the conclusion. How yeah. does their tone of voice have anything to do with that, right? But it says something about our sensibilities that everybody, including the non-believers, take that seriously. That's my accounting of, of why I think there's lots of believers in philosophy of religion, but by and large, philosophers don't believe. And I think by and large, philosophers are naturalists, too, which those are separate. They shouldn't be run yeah. together, but they're not unrelated in people's minds. Yeah. But then you get some of the people like Plantinga going after naturalism, which is an interesting new twist. Well, I think naturalists themselves are quite aware of the pr 
problems that face naturalism and they're continuously trying to work it out just like scientists are the ones who are most aware of the problems with various scientific disciplines and they're the ones trying to work out the problems to figure out how things really are yeah that's right i've been disappointed with the way biologists and sometimes scientists will talk about this stuff i went to see pz myers the other night here he gave a talk about you know all of his various altercations with creationists and i gotta say i was really disappointed in how he did, maybe he could do better if he tried but i was really disappointed in how poorly he handled you know, what naturalism is and what teleology is and how he treated the whole thing because he did tend to treat naturalism as a kind of unspoken assumption. It's just something we start with. It's just a right. given. And I got to say that you're hearing more and more, at least I'm seeing more and more of the people coming from apologetics and people coming from Christianity who are criticizing naturalism or criticizing atheists because they take naturalism as a kind of dogmatic, a priori, you know, mm -hmm. assumption. And that it aggravates me, but then I start listening to P.G. Myers and I see why they're doing it. It's because people aren't being careful enough about how they're making these distinctions, right? That, that naturalism, you know, the view that there's, there's really nothing that exists except the sorts of things that can be discovered by empirical science or spatial temporal objects, roughly, let's call that naturalism. Mm -hmm. that, that's got to be, we got to consider that to be the conclusion of a long series of investigations into the alternatives. Yeah. Right? Instead of taking that as a given from the outset and then just running with it. Yeah. You know, I think the atheist and I think this thoughtful person has got to be prepared to, to change their mind about that if the evidence indicates it. Or, Well, your comments on P.Z. Myers brings up an interesting point because I think the new atheists in a lot of ways have done so much good for atheism, just bringing it to the forefront, making yeah. thousands of people feel okay about coming out as an atheist, and yet at the same time, none of the new atheists are actually trained in religion or philosophy of religion or history of religion or any of that, and so they end up saying some things that are really easy for theists to yeah. criticize correctly. So yeah. it's, there's like this good and this bad, and I'm not sure, how do you see all of that? Yeah, that's right. Well, Dennett certainly is an accomplished philosopher, but he, just, he doesn't take the philosophy of religion that seriously, you know, all the classic arguments and the like. But, you know, and look, uh, you know, I don't really think we should. I mean, the, the punchline here, the ultimate is, in a freshman or sophomore college class in philosophy of religion, you'll teach them about Anselm. But but everybody agrees that Kant refuted Anselm beyond any sort of resuscitation in the 1700s, and Paley gets you know Paley's argument was refuted 75 years before he wrote it by Hume. Yeah. And, and once you you know once you sort of know the dialectic of the over the centuries, you realize these classic arguments are interesting, they're thought provoking, and you can grow intellectually by learning about them. But nobody really thinks they work. You know, Dennett's not going to bother uh, going back to those. And he shouldn't because nobody else is. I mean, Planica is not going back to those. Planica is not, you know, Planica gave up on the ontological argument in the 70s, right? Uh, it's, a, it's a peculiar little note, but it's a, at the end of the, his, his book, uh, I think it's God, Freedom, and Evil. You know, he says, well, what I've done here is I've established the rational acceptability of theism, but I haven't argued for the conclusion. I haven't given any reasons for thinking it's true if you didn't already think it was true. What I've done is shown that if you already think it's true, then you'll agree with me that it's rationally acceptable. <laughs> you know, and I think this, that, like, this goes by a lot of folks, that you know, the, the, the preeminent 
philosophers in the field don't really think that argument works. William Lane Craig is a sort of sore thumb exception on this with, you know, trotting out that Kalam argument over and over again. But you're, you're absolutely right. Dawkins will really fumble some philosophical distinctions. You know, Dawkins, he's a hammer and he sees everything as a nail and the nail is the design argument. And I, I love him and he's done remarkable work and he's a great popularizer, but he tends to think of believing in God just means design argument and he thinks there's nothing else to it. So he spent, you know, 30 years and 10 books refuting the design argument. <laughs> now, Harris is an undergrad in philosophy. He's pretty careful and pretty sober sometimes. And he's, uh, but he won't, you know, he won't do it like an analytic philosopher, but he's just yeah. a really smart guy. And his major target is faith. So, you know, it's not like he has that much philosophical opposition. I don't, I don't know what else could happen, right? I mean, some of this really high-end abstract technical stuff, like the stuff that's in the Martin and Monier anthologies or, mm-hmm. or some of those, that's not going to make it into the mainstream. Um, yeah. It's just too dry and too technical and too boring. So it's got to be popularizers like them that sort of bridge the gap. Well, as an atheistic philosopher of religion, you're in the minority in that area, uh, subject area. Yeah. I imagine that at times it feels like every time you refute an argument, there are a hundred theistic philosophers in your position who make up 20 different arguments and you just can't keep up with it. What is it like to be an atheistic philosopher of religion, and what would you like to see more of from atheistic philosophers of religion? I don't know. I guess I, I'm used to being an underdog on that with the philosophers. <laughs> Some of these views, like that Reformed epistemology view, I'm just I'm amazed at the creativity of it and the and the sophistication of it. That just to construct this really, you know, such a complex argument that bites so many bullets, right? And just to navigate around all the various problems that people have pointed out with the God belief. Three worlds I'm straddling here. There's academic philosophers, and then there's students, and there's the blog world, you know. And in the blog world, oh, it's just awful there, right? No sooner do you, do you lay out and explain the problem with this than, you know, it just these things, they never die. They just keep getting resuscitated and keep coming up because they're in the popular consciousness. So, uh, and not everybody reads your blog, and not everybody reads all your posts on your blog, so, so they yeah. always, and these ideas just keep coming up again and again and again. Yeah. And I've got to say, some of the middle level, like preachers and, and pastors and priests, the people who are semi-philosophically literate, a lot of those people are the ones who are guilty for, of sustaining and keeping some of these really bad arguments and bad ideas going. They just keep bringing the zombies back from the dead, and you have to reteach every new person about the basics. Yeah. I mean, you know how that is, right? You get you get lots of those. Yep. I think I'm getting more trolls than you are for that, and I'm not sure why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, running a blog is an entirely different discussion. One type of argument that I think is under-discussed and that I would like to see atheists insist on more are incompatible properties arguments. Yeah. What is an incompatible properties argument? Yeah, that's a good point. And I, I'm going to put a plug in right here. I just got my big piece on atheism published in the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Yeah, it's a very good overview of contemporary atheism. Everyone should definitely check it out. I, I know I wrote it, but I got to say, there's really nothing else like it out there right now, and and that's the that's the the gist of what I think I've learned by teaching that course over the last several years, 
And so one of the big distinctions I make there is between inductive arguments and deductive arguments. And so there's this whole huge family of arguments, the, the incompatible properties arguments. Right. And um, I think those have been underappreciated. The, the way they used to get treated was that, you know, Anselm's aware of them, and Aquinas are aware of them, and they just, they just tried to work it out. Well, how, you know, what does, um, what does omnipotence mean? And they would work it out, and they would navigate around various problems as they saw them. But when, when less sympathetic characters got a hold of those ideas, they argued either that a single property was just incoherent or had no meaningful definition. Omnipotence is a really good one, right? This is a big shocker to me, is that there have been people in the last 50 years who've applied the most sophisticated logical analyses and brought the most advanced philosophical tools to the table and tried to work out the, a, a non-paradoxical account of what it would be to be omnipotent. And my take on it, as far as I can tell, is that they're just empty-handed. They just, we don't really have a good account of what it is. A lot of people are familiar with the paradox of the stone, and that's just the start of it. It turns out it gets way worse once you get into more technical modal logic and possible world logic and all these different kinds of, of logics. So you get people like Patrick Grimm is, yeah. is a really big player in this field, and he's just pounded away on omnipotence and omniscience. Mm -hmm. So the implication here is huge, right? I mean, what that suggests is we've got this idea of a being, and by, by most people's accounting, you, everybody's got to concur that this being has got to be infinitely powerful or omnipotent or all-powerful or something like that. And this being's got to be all-knowing, have all knowledge. Those are, those are essentially divine properties. And you've had people working busily, you know, throwing themselves at this for literally thousands of years now, century after century after century, trying to figure out just what it would be to be those two things. And we've got nothing. Uh, so at what point do you say, hey, you know what? Maybe this, there's just nothing up this tree to be barking at. Um, you know, at what point do you walk away from it? So those are the single property arguments. And then there's another category of, of multiple property arguments. So people will argue that omniscience is incompatible with freedom or omnipotence is incompatible with omniscience. Or I've got an article where I argue that omniscience is incompatible with omnipresence. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like Legos. You can mix and match and <laughs> and uh, produce these, you know, interesting conflicts when you start putting different properties together. So there's huge literature on this, right? That that There's a good example of maybe the sort of argument, the sort of article that doesn't typically make it into a philosophy or religion text, mm -hmm. but that deserves to be there because there's some really interesting work being done there. That's one of the things I've added to my class. Yeah, and I think one thing that's interesting about those arguments for me is, that, you know, these are deductive arguments usually. So if they succeeded, if they were a sound argument, then they would pretty yeah. much conclusively disprove the existence of that kind of being. And there's so many of them out there that have been worked out in pretty fine detail, but the response from theism yeah. has mostly been to just ignore them rather than to grapple with them and try to give a coherent picture of God, and that's very frustrating. Yeah, yeah that's right. My only uh, caveat on that is that after the 20th century, um, our ideas about deductive certainty yeah. are all changed. Yeah. So if you're saying that we've demonstrated something's deeply metaphysically impossible on the basis of uh, you know one of these arguments, I'm hesitant to put that much stock in the deductive argument, it, it, but here's why. You know, if you thought this through, you realize, and Quine argued, and lots of people have, have, have accepted the point, 
that even the rules of logic and even the, the sort of deep conceptual rules that we use to produce logical deductive arguments, those are subject to revision depending on the sorts of empirical results and empirical experience we get. So the ultimate arbiter of our logic, the short way to put it is a deductive service, not what it used to be. That's not to say that these don't count heavily against the existence of God. I mean, I think what they do is they say, okay, whatever God is, we've got to treat it as a hypothesis, and it sure doesn't look like it can be this sort of thing because this sort of thing just doesn't even make sense. We can't even you know, reconcile that with our basic rules of logic that have stood us in good stead. Mm-hmm. So I guess the really charitable way to put that for the believer community is that that forces them back to the drawing board to come up with a better account that navigates around that problem. Now what that ends up looking like is just an ad hoc you know, re-engineering of the idea. And I, I think lots of people who aren't that serious about atheism just you know, think about all those problems and go, ah, you know what, you know, give it up, move on. But a lot of people who really want to believe will spend a lot of time and energy engineering a new account that allegedly navigates around the problem. That's what's happened with omnipotence. There's a really good example, right? Because we've got five or six major players of definitions of what omnipotence are, and they've all got these big problems. And that's people trying to get around paradoxes and trying to come up with a good, clear account. Hmm. Well, let's shift gears a bit and talk about miracles and especially the resurrection of Jesus. You have a lot of work on this and you're uh, you're writing a book on the subject. Christians often say that we have enough evidence to say that a miraculous resurrection of Jesus occurred in the past. What are some of the problems with that? Yeah, I had heard that for years and years, and I hadn't taken it very seriously and hadn't thought about it too much, and so I finally dove in and actually started looking at some of the Bible scholarship and some of the history here. And rather than just doing a historical account like, say, Richard Carrier's doing, I'm trained as an epistemologist, so I thought my approach has always been, okay, well, you take your average off-the-street Christian Here's my philosophical, epistemological take on this question. Average person, what do they know? What kind of information do they have that might lead them to think that that happened? Well, you know, the short story here is that what they've got is there there was allegedly an event in 35 AD, and after the event, some 20, 30, 60, 90 years passed, while people talked to each other excitedly about what they think had happened, and then um, some people got around to writing it down. So that from 30 to 50 to 70 years out after the event, you get some written records. And those written records get altered and changed, and we actually don't have those written records. What we've got are copies of copies of copies of copies of those from the late 200s. So so actually, the, the only thing that, that a person right now can put their hands on and call it you know, some sort of evidence that connects them to the event is a document from 250 years, uh, a, a little parchment manuscript, some fragments of the manuscript from 250 years after the event. Okay, so that's, you know, that's pretty substantial. It's pretty significant that, that the thread connecting you to that event is so thin. Come to find out that, that by, by widespread consensus, Matthew and Luke get all of their material from Mark. So those aren't independent lines of information. That's stuff that they just cribbed from Mark. So really what you've got is Mark and John. And then 
to make matters worse, the ending of Mark, I just was looking, looking at this the other day, everything about the resurrection on in Mark actually wasn't part of the original document. That all gets added like 200 years later by another author who didn't do what the author of Mark did. Somebody added this on later, and everybody's really agreed on that too. So, yeah. so really, what you've got is this one story. John comes another, you know, few, few decades later, and he tells a very different story, even even worse. So, when you start looking at the real details here, you you realize that there's there's remarkably thin threads that just by themselves should undermine our confidence in in this being true, or or being able to to say with you know, some level of certainty. Yeah, this stuff is this this stuff is reliable enough that I can, you know, draw this conclusion on the basis of it. And and that's what I've been hammering away at. Another thing I've been doing is is trying to come up with vivid graphic ways to show how ordinarily people with their standard epistemic conventions would never accept a claim like this on the basis of that kind of evidence. Yeah. They do about Jesus, but they wouldn't about anything else, right? If if I tried to give you a medical diagnosis that way or 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 tried to sell you a car that way or tried to, you know, tell you anything else, tell you certainly tell you something extraordinary, you know, that way, you'd never accept it. And the the example I've come upon that seems to be really rhetorically effective with people when I talk to them is the Salem witch trials, right? Um, so here's a case where you've got a truckload of evidence. You've got you've got by orders of magnitude, you've got better evidence for thinking that there was real magic that happened in Salem than real magic happened in Jerusalem. Uh, but the thing is, nobody, by and large, most people don't think that there were really witches in Salem. But when you parallel the accounts, you, you realize that, look, if you're going to accept the Jesus case, then you've got to accept the Salem case. And I've got a whole bunch of others like that where I trot them out and, and sort of demonstrate. What I'm trying to do is just demonstrate that when people are accepting the Jesus case, it's way out of whack. It's out of sync with the rest of their critical thinking and their normal reasoning they've got a, a double standard exactly it's special thinking yeah, like yeah they would only think that way about their preconceived axiom about the resurrection of jesus and that's that that idea that you talk about there is actually the complete foundation for my entire blog because yeah. um, what I mean by common sense atheism right. is not that atheism is common sense. I don't actually have much respect for common right. sense. But but that if you use the same kind of thinking about your own religion as you do about everything else in life, you would never be able to accept that you have enough evidence to think that Jesus rose from the dead or something like that. And uh, the example that I use is the Hindu milk <clears throat> miracle of 1996, yeah, exactly. which you know, was caught on videotape, exactly. there are living witnesses, yeah. there are hundreds of original documents, yeah. uh, all claiming that the Hindu statues all around India one day started to drink milk. Now, that is just, I mean, thousands of times more evidence than we have for the resurrection of Jesus, and yet none of us really think that Hindu statues decided to drink milk one day. So how on earth would you reject the Hindu milk miracle with, like you said, truckloads of really solid evidence, but then accept the resurrection of Jesus on the basis of really, really, really terrible evidence. 
I, I think that's exactly right, and that's that's sort of been my purpose with my blog too. Bizarre sometimes because I I don't want to feel so persecuted or so out on my own, but it really does feel like you're you're like the little kid in the emperor with no clothes story. Because once you've made this gestalt shift out of it, you, it becomes really transparent what's going on here. Is that that people because of social conventions and because of maybe just a psychological phenomena or I don't know what neurological issues or whatever. People have got a, an enormous soft spot in their hearts and minds for religion. They just they give religious views a pass on everything. So yeah. they they have these grossly inconsistent standards that they, they you know that the that what they the bullshit that they will let slide by on Sunday morning in church is the sort of stuff that would never fly Monday morning in the office, right? They would never exactly. do that there. But not only do people have the double standards, but it's just it's sort of widely accepted and ignored. Yeah. So a little bit more about your upcoming book, The Case Against Christ. It sounds like you're going to take an argument against the resurrection of Jesus, not so much from a historical view, but from an epistemological view. Yeah, that's right. So I do have to give some history just to lay out those details about you know what the state of the evidence is. But then I've got the Salem Witch Trials argument, and I've got two or three chapters that are about um, various kinds of psychological research that we have now that's pertinent to the reliability of the original witnesses. And I've got a few more chapters that are dedicated to giving analogies that, that illustrate the double standard. And then I've got two or three chapters about miracles that are more philosophically focused, where I wonder about whether God would perform miracles, would a, an omnipotent being act in that sort of fashion and argue he wouldn't? Miracles are just too piddling and too puny, not the sorts of things that would be suitable gestures for a, for a being like that. And I, I think that's a novel argument. And I also argue that even if we were to have compelling evidence for miracles, that wouldn't be sufficient evidence for the existence of God. So by and large, it's all about uh, the resurrection, but I'm coming at it from several different angles. Yeah. And even though your book is philosophical, more so than maybe Dawkins' book or Harris's book, it's still kind of marketed to that level of reader, right? I've tried my best to make it accessible. Yeah, I really, I mean, it's naive, but I really hope, I really want sort of ordinary, thoughtful person who's wondering about religion, and I really want them to be able to access it. So yeah, I've, I've got a full manuscript now, so I'm working on my publisher. Well, this has been great. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. No, thank you. It's been very cool for me, too.